Well, as we get started this morning, um, I want to uh, take a moment and um, I want to pray for a, a few people. Um, we have been continuing to pray for Gina, and we have been praising the Lord this week that her numbers are coming down and, and the treatment is working, and so uh, we praise God for that. Um, uh, we want to continue to pray for Bobby and for healing um, and, and for this infection to go away um, and for him to be able to get back to work and kind of all those things back to normal. Um, we've been praying for uh, Ed's mom, and then um, Ed's brother found out yesterday that uh, he has ALS. And so the, the Rouse family has just been um, uh kind of bombarded right now. And so uh, I want to take time to pray for them. And then also um, just Hamid and Lisa, all the, the things that go with organizing a move and all the emotions that go with that. Um, uh, those are kind of all the things that are going on in our body. So don't, don't forget this afternoon, I think Tanya sent most of you text messages, um, but this afternoon we're going to get together at the park, uh, Triumphal Canyon, and um, uh, we're just going to take some time and take communion and pray. You can bring lunch, bring, you know, chairs, we'll, we'll distance, we'll wear masks, um, uh, but it'll just be good together. I mean, like, it's six months into this and we've taken communion together one time and, and that uh, was an amazing thing, uh, but it's something that we want to just be able to do regularly to take communion, to pray together. Uh, so if you can make it out this afternoon uh, after we're done here, that'd be great. There's one last thing I would ask you to pray about and then I'll, I'll pray. And that is um, uh, one of my best friends, um, Dave Ferguson is a pastor in, in Tampa, Florida area. And his nine year old son, Zion is um uh, in renal failure, and they can't figure out why. And so he's going to have a biopsy tomorrow. Um, Dave has called and asked uh, a number of pastors across the country to uh, get on a Zoom call this afternoon at four our time and seven their time, and uh, to just pray for Zion and to pray for healing. And they're going to anoint him with a will, and they're going to we're going to pray for him on Zoom. Um, and I don't think uh, God necessarily cares about the format. I think it's um, it, the scripture says that the effectual fervent prayer of the right righteous avails much. And we are righteous because of what Jesus did, not because of what we did. And he wants to hear our prayers and he wants us to do things his way. So uh, if you can also just uh, be praying for him, let's, let's open up our time in the word and prayer. And, um, and then we will uh, uh, begin our study in Nehemiah. Our father, we trust you because you are good. You are powerful the heavens declare your glory. The skies show your majesty. We look in creation and we see you and we see your power. We look in the way that uh, you have uh, designed things and we see your creativity. We look at the way that you have molded us and shaped us and you have made us in your image and we are in awe. And so, Lord, we know that you are capable and you are able to overcome every disease and every illness, that you are the one who we can reach out to and trust. And we have seen you answer our prayers. We've seen you answer uh, uh, these prayers for healing. And, and uh, Lord, so we, we come before you again and we ask you as a body, Lord, we ask that you will heal Gina, that you will allow her to be cancer-free, that her kids will say, God did this, God healed my mom that they will see that you are faithful. Lord, for Bobby, I pray that you will take away this infection, that he will see your goodness and love, that his son will see that you have healed his dad. Lord, we ask that his friends and the people that he works with will see your healing in, in Bobby's life, and, and they will give glory to you. Lord, for the Rouses, we just ask for, for Molly's complete healing. We thank you that she's doing better. We ask that she'll be able to get out of the hospital quickly and off of this ventilator. Lord, we pray for Glenn that we just, the, the thing that has um, got to be hard for him is just the, the idea of this thing that's pending, that's looming. But Lord, your word says in Philippians 4, um, to be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, we should make our requests known to you so that the peace that passes all understanding will keep our heart and mind stayed on you. And so, Lord, I ask that for Glenn's sake, you will give him the peace that passes all understanding, that you will allow him to embrace your goodness even in this thing. And Lord, that, that you will, if possible, 
you will heal him completely. And doctors will not understand, and they'll think that they've misdiagnosed. Lord, we ask that you will take this ALS from Glenn and that you will allow him to be able to uh, know your healing. Lord, for little Zion, Jesus, touch his body. For Dave and Jill, who are, are just wrestling with the, the angst of not being able to um, do something for their son other than take him to a doctor and have him poked and prodded, Lord, we ask that you will give them peace and grace. Lord, I pray that Zion will see your goodness in this and that he will see your love and that he will trust you and that you will raise up a child to be a man who says like Job, though you slay me, I will trust you. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, I pray that Zion will be a man of God who grows up to be strong and to be a testament of your grace and your mercy. Lord, we trust you. We trust you in everything, even uncertain and hard things. Like Hamid and Lisa packing up to move to Florida, there's uncertainty and there's hardness and there's grief of leaving friends. Lord, I pray that you will walk with them and that you will grant them peace and your love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been in the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah uh, has been uh, an interesting study for us because uh, the, the book of Nehemiah was, uh, was written thousands of years ago, um, and it is uh, so relevant for us today. Uh, this week, a friend of mine uh, named Ben Martin, who I've known for 30 years, uh, posted something on Facebook that got a lot of attention and a lot of uh, interaction. And it really surprised me because it wasn't anything that was like scandalous or political. And people were responding to a post about the glory of God. He, he posted, I've been doing some thinking and meditating on the glory of God. And I thought I'd ask, what comes to your mind when you think of the glory of God? And I was shocked at how many responses there were and how they varied. Uh, one posted uh, a quote from Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky uh, proclaims his handiwork. Another one referenced Exodus 34, where Moses came down from the hill and he didn't know that his face was shining because he had been in the presence of the glory of God. Another one quoted Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. One uh, quoted John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Another one referenced Hebrew 1, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father in majesty on high. And then another in, in Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As I read the responses, it seemed to me that everybody was looking at a different facet of God's glory, a different facet of the good news. It was like they were holding a diamond, and each time uh, it would catch the light in a different way. And some ca captured God's creative work in creation, and some captured God's holiness, that he only does what's good, right, and perfect, and he does not allow sin to remain unaddressed in his presence. Some captured his, his love and his redemption. Some captured the wonder of the incarnation, that Jesus walked among us. Some captured the glory of the cross, that God has reconciled us to, to himself. Others considered Jesus' role as priest and high king. And in, in shining the light on different facets of the glory of God, its brilliance was magnified. And, and Ben inadvertently instigated worship on Facebook, because what happened is, as people began to post more and more things, people were reading them before they posted, and the, the responses became increasingly worshipful, to the point where you read through it, and, and you begin to think about the glory of God, and you get just a glimpse of the glory of God, and you can't help but worship. If, if each of us, if, if I, I were to open up the mic and say, hey, tell me what comes to your mind when I ask you about the glory of God, uh, two things would happen. One is um, 
what you believe or think or would say about God's glory reveals much about you. A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our minds when we think about God and his glory is the most important thing about us. But also, we could not seriously ponder God's glory for any period of time before our hearts would begin to long for his presence and our souls would begin to sing of his greatness because perceiving God's glory always results in worship, always. You look at it all through the scripture, every time someone sees or perceives God's glory, they fall on their face and they worship him. I mean, Moses at the burning bush, right? Isaiah and Isaiah 6. We, we could go through a whole slew of those times. Even the disciples, when Jesus was transfigured before them, um, they fell on their face because the God's glory. We've been studying this, this book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8, when you come to it, uh, at first glance, you may look at it and think, holy cow, this is a dry history and a long list of names. In fact, those of you who are doing the Bible reading plan that a lot of the church has been following in January, you might have blown right past these two chapters and like, and that's a bunch of names I can't pronounce, and you just moved on and you didn't really think about it. But these two chapters lead us to God's glory and to joy. Now, just for those of you who might not have been with us kind of throughout all of this, um, I'll I'll recap. Um, uh, Nehemiah, the book, our our story that we're we're following, um, begins around 445 BC. It is the last history book that was written before Jesus came. And and 140 years before our story began, um, the people of God were turning their back on God and not believing his promises from Deuteronomy 28 to 30, that if they would turn away from God, he would bring to them pestilence and and war and famine, and they would be carried away by the other nations. And they thought, we're God's people. We're the people he loves. He's not going to do that to us. And so in 586, God sent the Babylonians. And the Babylonians invaded Judah. And when they went into Jerusalem, they destroyed everything. And they carried away captives and they resettled them in Babylon. Some of the captives that they settled are are names you know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, right? They were all carried away when that happened in in 586. And, And it was during this period that the exiles sang Psalm 137. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of its mouth. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest goal. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesied during this time, and he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord. From the tower of Hanel to the corner gate, the whole valley of dead bodies and ashes, and all the east shall be sacred to the Lord, and it shall not be uprooted or overthrown any more forever. And so the Israelites understood that Jerusalem was to be rebuilt to prove that God is a covenant keeper, that he is faithful, and, and to bring glory to God's name. Well, 70 years later, King Cyrus of Persia, um, who had overcome the, the, the Babylonians, he gave permission for um, a group of people to go back and to rebuild the temple. And so uh, it was fulfilled, and Jeremiah 29 said that after 70 years, the people would begin to return to the land. And sure enough, Zerubbabel goes to go rebuild the temple out of the rubble, right? That's how you remember who, who did that. And so things are looking good for a while. And it seems like, like the people have returned to their relationship with God and they're returning to the land. But the nation, again, begins to... To, to forget about their sin, that the temple is not being maintained. Sacrifices had ceased. Um, the Jews began to adopt the religious practices of the, the people around them. They allowed their walls to fall in disrepair. And so by the time our story begins, in, it's 70 years after the rebuilding of the temple, the political and social and spiritual conditions in Jerusalem are deplorable. And the walls are in ruin, and and the nation was vulnerable to the whims of all the nations around them. And we said that that Nehemiah um, is is a book about rebuilding the people and rebuilding the walls. And so uh, Nehemiah's brother came to him in Nehemiah 1 and said, uh, the walls are destroyed, the the people are are without leadership, and Nehemiah prays. And we 
as, as we use this acrostic people and walls, it gives us a sense of where we are in the story. And he goes and, and Artaxerxes gives him permission to, to go and to be the, the governor and to, to rebuild these walls. And so he examines the walls and he organizes the people. And then there's this persecution. These external kings are coming around them and they are, are trying to stop this from happening. And, and as they're building the walls, guys are complaining and they're saying, hey, look, I can't take care of my family because of the loans and interest that I've been taking um, from people within our own country. And, and my, my children have no food and how can I keep staying here to build the wall when my family's lo- going to lose their property and my kids will be turned out on the street with no food. And so they come together and say, this is not right. And we are going to give freely and we're, we're going to forgive debts. And, and then it just... It, amazingly, in a very short amount of time, the wall is completed. And we talked about that last week. And, and the wall is completed and, and people are excited, but there's kind of this sense that God must have done it because it happened in such a short, compressed period of time. The two chapters we're going to be in today are seven and eight. And, and when you read, like even here, you know, attendance taken, it's a list of names. Like this is not going to be something that we want to spend a Sunday morning on and no rebellion, their response to, to the word of God being preached. You go, all right. Um, man, what I want to get into is more of the, the worship of God in chapter nine. I want, I want to see what they agree together and what they covenant together in chapter 10. I want to see how they respond to sin in chapter 13. Like, but like attendance and, and, you know, hearing God's word preached, what is that about? How, how is it that I spend time there? If, if, if we come to, to, to Nehemiah chapter seven, what we see is that in Nehemiah seven and eight, um, Nehemiah does three things. He establishes leaders and he examines the lineage of the people. And then he exposits the law. He, those, those are kind of the three things that he does. But if we're in a hurry, we'll look at that as a historical representation of what happened. And we won't ask, why did he do those particular things? Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. And the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been built. Looking at, the, at this, we, we see what he does, he does, right? So Nehemiah is establishing leaders to organize the city. But he is establishing leaders to organize the city around God's glory. Building the walls and setting the gates, that was just the prelude to the hard work of actually establishing a community of faith and faithfulness to God's covenant. And so it's not surprising that he says that after he has the walls built and he had set the doors, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed. He starts with singers and Levites. And, and you go, why? For the same reason that the temple was built before the wall, because worship had always been the primary purpose for God's people. The reason for God's redemption is to bring sinners to a place where they can worship God. The temple had been rebuilt to organize and to center the worship of God. And the walls were built to protect this culture of worship. Just look at who he makes the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers are the choir. They're the singers. They're the Levites. They're the people serving in the, in the, the temple. Like when the way that the, this is structured, you, you think he's talking about three different things and it's the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites. I mean, that's who had been appointed. And it was a visual representation when people walked in and they saw the church choir and they saw the priests and the Levites and they were the guards of the the gates. What it said was worship doesn't just happen in in the temple. Worship happens in this city. Worship happens in this culture. It happens everywhere. This is a city for God. This is a city for his worship. And we are structuring and we are organizing the city around God's glory. So first he sets religious leaders, and then he sets 
political leaders. And the political leaders that he chooses, it says that, that um, uh, let's see, I, I gave my brother, Hanani, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge of Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing than many. They didn't have a, a pragmatic, um, uncaring attitude about character as they as they set um, political leaders in place. They, they said, at first he says, this is my brother. And if you look back in chapter one, um, you see Hanani is, is mentioned as the one coming from Judea and telling uh, Nehemiah about the destruction of the walls. And it says, one of my brothers. And so we are assuming it's actually a blood brother and not um, him just using that metaphorically because twice he has said, one of my brothers, and then now he calls him my brother. But at very least we can say, this is somebody he trusted. This is somebody who he looked at and thought with Sam Ballot and Tobiah and all these people around me trying to uh, infiltrate and trying to, to send spies and trying to influence. I need someone who I can trust implicitly. And so I gave my brother, someone that is trustworthy, uh, this role. And, and it says that he was more faithful. That is, he was more reliable. He was more proven. He was more capable. And he was more God-fearing than many. One of the translations uh, says he was more reverent. Um, and, and you read that and you go, why would a political leader, why would a maybe even a military leader need to be someone who is reverent? Like, why would, why would that be something that, that you pick? John Witherspoon, who was uh, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, um, said it this way, it is only the fear of God that can keep us and deliver us from the fear of men. And so Nehemiah understood that he needed someone who um, did not fear men because he feared God. And so then he gives them instructions and he tells them how it is that they're supposed to, to protect the gates. Don't open the gates until the sun is up and hot. Um, that way you can see there's no enemies out there and, and um, there's no question and there's no deceit that can happen. And then when you're inside, make sure that that when people aren't coming and going, the gates are closed so that nobody can sneak up. And, and, and so he gives some very practical things. Well, what he does is he lays out for us kind of some characteristics, characteristics of leadership, trustworthiness, and faithfulness or reliableness, um, God-fearing or reverence, um, teachable, able to take instruction. And, and you read those words and you go, yeah, those are the kinds of things, like, that is what we need our pastors and our church leaders to be. But remember that these are political leaders. And he's saying, these are the people I set up in charge of the city. These are not qualifications that you go, that's just the qualifications of an elder. These are the qualifications that we should be looking for and we should be praying for and we should be promoting among our political leaders. And it's, it's something that, that if we don't, it's because we've become more concerned about political expediency than we have about God's glory. Tony Evans recently likened politics uh, to a football game where one team is wearing red and one team is wearing blue. And, and our tendency as humans is, as we're watching the game, to think, oh, I like the blue team, or I like the red team, or I'd like to play for the red team, or I'd like to play for the blue team. And he said the, the reality is, is that if we are identifying with the players on the field, then we don't understand our place in the game, that we are not players and we are not spectators. We are the ones who have been entrusted by the commissioner with the rule book. And so we are the ones who are to point out when one team or the other is breaking the rules. And we are the ones that, that if we root for one team over the other as we are arbitrating for the commissioner, then, then we are desecrating the game and we are dishonoring the commissioner when we take off our black and white jersey and we put on a red one or put on a blue one and we overlook the, the things that one team does because we don't necessarily um, want them to, to, to have our... Um, our dislike because, because we like most of what they do, right? And so what he says is that, that Christians are to be the ones who um, are constantly promoting 
that our leaders, no matter what team they're playing for, are trustworthy, that they're reliable, that they're reverent, that they're teachable. And we should, we should promote that and we should pray for that. And we should, should make sure that God's glory is always the most important thing in our mind and not just political gains. And, and when, when God's glory is the most important thing, then our eyes will be on the eternal city that God is building. Revelation 21 says that when Christ comes, that, that the holy city, New Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven from God. And it is a city that Abraham looked for, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It is the kingdom that was promised when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And God's glory should always be preeminent in our mind. And yes, we vote, and we'll probably vote one side or the other, right? And sometimes people vote in the middle, but but most of the time, you're, you're choosing between one or two. But you have to remember in that you're not a player, you're not a spectator, you're the one holding God's rule book, and you're the one that's, that's called to arbitrate that to the world. And so we take God's grace and God's glory to the world, and we speak into that knowing that we're never going to fit on either team because we are on God's team. Well, why did Nehemiah appoint these leaders? He appointed leaders because his commission was complete. He had asked Artaxerxes if he, could, if he could go and he could rebuild a wall, and he had rebuilt the wall. And so here it was, it was time to appoint leaders, but Nehemiah establishes these leaders to organize the city around God's glory. And then the next thing he does, it says that then God put in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came out of the captivity, those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile, and they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, and they came with Zerubbabel, and it begins a list of people that came with Zerubbabel. And, and what this list is, is almost an identical list to Ezra chapter 2. In Ezra chapter 2, you have um, uh, this list that Ezra writes down of all the people who come to help rebuild the temple and all the people that come out of captivity so that they can begin to capture these are the people who, who came and these are the people who are part of what God was doing. And so Nehemiah finds this and, and he's looking at this scroll that Ezra had written and with, with all the people. And he goes, oh, yeah, I know that person's line of people. Uh, that's so-and-so's granddad. That's so, and, and, and he decides that he's going to bring this out and he's going to talk to the people about it. And he is going to have the people look backwards and to see God's faithfulness. And he's going to start with people that they knew, like their parents and their grandparents. And we get to chapter nine and they're going to look at a, a longer history of Israel. And they're going to look at all the things that God did over a long period of time. But right now he's just trying to get people to look backwards far enough to go, yeah, my parents and my grandparents, they were the ones who, who God used and showed his faithfulness through. It's kind of like that we do on Veterans Day or on 9-11. And we look back at, at sacrifices made and, and, and he's having these people look back to remember how it was that God had proved his faithfulness. And, and so he wants them to see how God proved his faithfulness, but he wants to show them their place in the story. And that's why if you put Ezra chapter two and you put uh, Nehemiah chapter seven side by side, you're going to see that some of the names have been updated and some of the numbers have been updated. And it's because he is showing them their place in the, in the story. And he is allowing them to see that, yes, we're, we're updating this and we're keeping track and you are now part of the story. You go, all right, well, Why? Why, why would he do this? And, and really what it comes down to is that he is trying to organize the people and, and organize worship around God's glory. Look what happens um, when you get down to, to verse 61. It says, the following were those who came out, uh, up out of Talmela and Talharsha, Cherub, Aden, Immer. They, they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. And the sons of Deliah, and the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, there were 642. Also the priests, the sons of Hobiah, and the sons of Hakaz, and the sons of Barzillia, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillia, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. And it says, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogy, but it was not found there. 
So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. You go, wait a minute, what just happened? There, there's a group of people, they, they show up and they're looking at the genealogies and they're looking at the people who were first brought in and, and this whole group of people, they go, our names aren't there. Like there isn't anybody that we look at because during the course of this 140 years, people had intermarried, groups had moved in and, and here's a group of people, they were priests. They were priests in the temple of God and they could not show that their lineage actually went back to Israel. And so because of that, um, they, they are going to have to prepare to get new jobs. More than 600 people have to get new jobs. They can't take the, the, the worship. They, they're excluded from the priesthood, but they're also not to partake of the most holy food. It's, it's, they are basically being kind of set aside and saying, hey, until someone can come and with black and white stones, use that for God to, to give his nod, yes or no, you're in the covenant, you're not in the covenant. We're, we're setting you aside. You go, wow, that's really harsh. And, and then it goes on and it says, so the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and singers and some of the people of the temple and the servants and all of Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And, and you get this, this um, uh, idea in chapter seven and eight that Nehemiah, um, he, he looks and sees that the, the city has been left empty. No houses have been rebuilt. And he begins to assign people jobs in this process. And as he assigns them jobs, he is assigning them where to, wor where to work and where to live. And they're going to have to leave their house outside the city, and they're going to have to build a house inside the city. And so you see some people losing their jobs and having to find new jobs, and some people losing their homes and having to find new homes. And you go, what is that about? It is about these people understanding that God's glory is more important than their comfort, that this city was, is being built, according to Jeremiah, for God, that what they are doing is for him. And to do it for him means that they have to do it his way. And so when, when you read Jeremiah and it says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be built for the Lord, for Yahweh, then you understand that this city is not for their comfort. This city is for God's glory. And so they are building a city for God's glory. So Nehemiah establishes leaders to organize the city around God's glory, but he examines the lineage of people to organize worship around God's glory and to make sure that they're worshiping God in the way that God has prescribed. Well, then it says that Nehemiah and Ezra began to exposit the law. And they do that to orient the congregation around God's glory. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Now, I... I've read this lots of different times over the years. And, and I guess, I, I don't know where I came up with this idea, but I had it in my mind that, that um, the people go back just a, you know, a few days earlier, they finished the wall. And the people go back to their homes. And then something supernatural or something spontaneous happens. And people just begin to kind of wander out of their house and go, wow, something amazing's happened. And, and they just, you know, spontaneously say, Ezra, come and read to us from the book of the law. I don't think that that's what happened. Um, I, I, I think that, that verse four gives us a clue uh, about what happened. It says, um, oh, I must have missed a slide. Oh, there we go. Um, verse three, and he read facing the square before the water gate from the early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that had been made for that purpose. I think what happened is they got done building the wall. And Nehemiah said, hey, um, you guys can all go home. But what I want you to do is on the first of the month, I want you to all be back here. I want you all, I want you to bring your families. I want everybody to come and I want everybody to gather in the square and, and everybody that can understand, I want them to be there. 
And so based on the numbers that we have, we know that it's probably 30 to 50,000 people. And because you've got husbands and wives and then they've got kids and you don't want to leave them home playing with matches. So they bring them all out into the square, right? Everybody who can handle it they're, they're They have come out into the square in mass and, and they come out on the first day of the seven month and you go, why, why is that important? Because the first day of the seventh month, seventh month is the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets. It is the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus chapter 23 says, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation, and you will do no ordinary work and no ordinary um, sacrifices, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord your God. And so what Nehemiah knows is that, that there's a holy day coming, and it's not enough to just rebuild the walls. We have to begin to rebuild the people, and we have to orient them around God's glory. And part of orienting them around God's glory is helping them understand his law and keep his law. And, that, and, and so he calls them together, and they call to Ezra, and, and they ask Ezra to read the law. You know, why Ezra? It doesn't say Ezra's the high priest. Um, you know, what, what was it about Ezra? Well, I noticed a couple things about Ezra as I read through parts of Ezra this week and parts of Nehemiah. Um, Ezra was very clearly called by God. Um, it says in, in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, that he was a scribe and skilled in the law of Moses and the Lord, uh, that the Lord of God had uh, given. And the king granted him all that he asked because... The hand of the Lord was upon him. And so you go, okay, there's no question he was called. But it also says that he was gifted, that, that he was able to read from the book clearly and give the sense to the people so that they could understand him. Like gift, um, uh, gifting is a good confirmation of calling. Um, when I was uh, working at the first church that I worked for while I was still in seminary, um, uh, there was a, a guy who came to me who was going to Dallas Seminary. He was in his fourth year, and he said, um, I need to do an internship before I graduate. Can I intern for you? Well, I was super shorthanded, and I needed a lot of, of, of help. I was doing membership in a church that had gone from 1,700 to 2,000 people in about, I don't know, 700 to 2,000 people in about uh, a year's time, and it, it growing rapidly, and I'm in charge of membership, and, um, and so I was shorthanded and I was thinking, man, this would be great. But I knew I had had permission from the senior pastor. So I went to him and I said, hey, this guy has come to me. He wants to intern for me. Um, uh, I need the help. Uh, what do you think? And he said, all right, you can have him intern on one condition. That is, at some point during this internship, you have to sit down with him and talk to him about what he says his call is and what his gifting actually is. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, he says he wants to be a senior pastor. And I was like, oh, that's impossible. He can't talk in front of people. Like if there's more than two people standing in front of him, he gets all flustered and can't talk. And, and he goes, yeah, I know you need to talk to him. Um, so he worked for me and he did a great job and I got to observe him. Um, and so one, day I take him to lunch and I sit down with him and I said, hey, let's talk about your calling and about your gifting. And he said, well, I know my calling is sure. God has called me to be a senior pastor. And that's why I'm at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm doing a master's of theology so I can be a senior pastor. And I said, all right, when you speak in front of like more than one or two people, how do you feel? He goes, oh, like I want to throw up. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, you, you can't get your words out. And and so when you try to teach, um, nobody learns. They, they just sit there on the edge of their seat, kind of feeling like nails on a chalkboard and, and thinking, oh, please make it stop, right? Um, so, so why do you believe that God's called you that way? He goes, I just feel it. God's called me. But his calling and his gifting didn't match up. And I had to say to him, like, hey, I've watched you one-on-one -on -one with people, and you have a wealth of Bible knowledge, and you have a wealth of understanding, and you have a wealth of empathy and love and compassion, and people feel loved when they talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. Have you ever thought about a counseling ministry? No, God's called me. And now, I don't know, 25 years later, he is still not in ministry because he was absolutely certain that God had called him to something that God had not gifted him to. Gifting is um, one of those things that's easy to spot, 
right? If somebody has the gift of teaching, when, when they're around, people learn. If somebody has the gift of leadership, where they go, people follow. If somebody has the gift of encouragement, people around them feel their spirits lifted. Like you can observe the gifting and then you can say, well, that goes with this calling. And, and sometimes people want their calling to be something that doesn't match their gifting. Ezra was a guy who was clearly called, but he was also gifted. And it says that, that he was able to speak and the people were able to understand and, and he led them to worship. And I think that that's kind of the key thing is that more than his gifting and more than his calling, he was devoted to God's glory. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says that, that Ezra set his heart to study the, the, the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes in Israel. And th that is really um, what any teacher has to do, right? It's you have to prepare, you have to know it, you have to learn it, you have to practice it. What does this look like in real life? And then you preach it, right? So prepare, practice, preach. Like those things, this is what Ezra had committed himself to. I'm going to study it and I'm going to obey. I'm going to study it and I'm going to know it, but I'm going to practice it so that people can watch my life before they ever hear my words. And so he studies and obeys and then he teaches people. And when you come to Nehemiah chapter eight, it says that, that as he's teaching, verse five, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people and he opened it up to all the people and Ezra blessed the Lord. Ezra gave glory to God. The great God and all the people answered, amen, lifting up their hands. And look how they respond. As he gives glory to God, they bow their heads and they worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. And you go, why is that? Because he has so painted a picture of God's glory that they respond like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, he says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and his glory shone. And I fell on my face, and I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord of hosts. And he falls down, and he worships, thinking, God is going to kill me. And, and he saw physically God's glory. But Ezra was so committed to God's glory that as he taught and he gave glory to the Lord, as he described the glory of God, they fell to their faces and they bowed their heads to the ground and they worshiped God. And, and so you understand that, that it wasn't just about his gifting and calling. It was about where he gave glory and how he gave glory. So it goes on, it says, and, and it begins to give us a, a, a whole list of, of people, um, Joshua and Benai and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akub and Shabtha and Hodiah and, Hes and Messiah and uh, Kalida and Azariah and Josabad and Hanan and Peliah. The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their place. Now, imagine this, like this is happening over a period of four to six hours, and the people are either standing or they are on their faces worshiping, but they stay there through the whole entire thing. And they read from the book of the law, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And that is really what Bible exposition is. You are reading the word of God, and you are explaining it so that people understand it and go, yeah, that makes total sense. When I read it now, that's exactly what I see. I don't know why I didn't, I couldn't see that to start with. That is Bible exposition. And so Nehemiah exposits the law and Ezra exposits the law, the two together. And, and, um, and so it says that Nehemiah, who's the governor, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites taught all the people and said, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the law. And, and they said, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. And, and they say, go your way, the fat, and drink. Uh, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He's leading them to God's glory. He's orienting them to God's glory, but he's orienting them to God's glory so that they might find joy. 
they, they, they fall down on their faces in an appropriate response. And, and they say, no, 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 this is a whole, this is a solemn day, right? This is a day of solemn rest. This is a day when, when you can rest in the fact that, that God is doing everything and you don't have to do anything. So go your way, celebrate and share with people who don't have any ready for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I mean, there's songs about it. It's like a Christian successory. You know, it ends up on your, your, your refrigerator on a magnet. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy, this is the one place in Scripture that it happens. And, and it happens as, in the contrast of people who are on their face. They're mourning and crying because they have seen the glory of God and they have seen their sinfulness. And they know that they do not deserve anything. And he says, no, 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 the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people and said, be quiet. This is a holy day. This is a solemn day of rest. Don't be grieved. The, the joy of the Lord is your strength. When you have seen God's glory and, and you own your inability, the joy of the Lord can be your strength when you understand God's holiness and, and that he has redeemed you from his wrath. The joy of the Lord is your strength when you understand that he has called you to solemn rest and that he has done all of the work and, and he just wants you to worship him and to bask in his glory. The joy of the Lord is your strength when you can celebrate his redemption with abandon. And look what it says. All the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They understood that, that I have seen God's glory. And instead of weeping and mourning and shame and guilt in seeing God's glory, because he has chosen to love me, I am able to respond in joy. And so all the people went and they ate and drank and they celebrated. About 10 years ago, um, I sat down with a, a woman I had known most of my life. Uh, um, she had pretty much watched me growing up. And so she knew that um, I had been a pretty hard-headed kid. Uh, she knew, she said, it, um, you're someone who thinks for himself. Um, and, uh, and she knew that I had been kind of wild and that there was a period of time where it didn't look really promising that I would be somebody who ended up in the faith. Um, and so she sat down and she said, look, I've left the faith. And I'm curious why you're still in it and why you're a pastor. Can you help me understand and I said, yeah, for me, it's, it's really simple. Um, I pursued joy, and I didn't find it in a lot of things. And I looked for it in a lot of things, and they were just disappointed, and all they brought me was pain. But when I pursued God, I found joy. And I believe what Psalm 16 says is true. In God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand is pleasure forevermore. And so I am in the faith, and I am leading other people to faith because I have found joy in God alone. And she said, you know what? I wish I could say the same. I grew up in a family that was in ministry. I grew up around Christians and I never once saw that. I never saw people look for joy and find God. And she said this and she used this phrase. She said, if ever once I had seen the joy of the Lord is my strength, I would still be in the faith. When we orient ourselves to God's glory, we are orienting ourselves to joy. Nehemiah organizes the people in the city, and he organizes them around God's glory. And Nehemiah organizes worship, and he organizes it around God's glory. And then they open up the law of God, and they orient people to God's glory. But it's so that they will, in finding God's glory, they will find his joy. First Peter 1 says, Glory to be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When we orient our lives around God's glory, we are orienting our lives in such a way that we can experience his glorious joy. And so 
we have to understand what it is that he has given us to experience that joy. We have to understand his glory. We have to understand that he has called us to solemn rest because we don't have to do anything because he did it for us. We don't have to work and we don't have to do regular sacrifices. We get to rest in the fact that he did the work. And, and as we orient ourselves to God's glory, we orient ourselves to the greatest joy possible that God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves, that God has given to us what we could not achieve on our own. And so we orient ourselves to, to God's glory. And as we do, he gives us his joy. Our Father, we are amazed at your word. And we are amazed at your glory. Lord, all week as I've thought about this, and I've thought about people who have seen your glory, Moses being told to take off his shoes and falling down on his face, Isaiah falling down on his face, the disciples falling down as Jesus is transfigured, the, 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 the people hearing God's voice, the soldiers, when Jesus said, I am that I am, as they fell down, Lord, the glory of God causes us to worship. And Lord, in worshiping you, we begin to do the thing you've created us for. You have created us to worship. You have breathed into us the breath of life that as we breathe in and we breathe out, we are breathing in and breathing out you. And you are the giver of life and you are the one that we adore and you are the one that every breath is for. And as we actually live according to the purpose that you made us for, we find joy and we celebrate it. Lord, we thank you that we get to come together and we get to celebrate and we get to worship you. We thank you that we not just get to read your word and, and go try to work it out, but, but we come together with a corporate understanding of who you are and who we are in you. And so, Lord, we look forward this afternoon to be able to take bread and take a cup and to be able to say, this is the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that accomplished everything that I can't accomplish. And it is allowing me to rest in him because he has done for me what I could not do for myself. And I find joy in him. Lord, I pray that we will be a people of joy, that we will spread the joy of the good news of the gospel to every land, every nation, every tongue, every tribe. Lord, we pray this because we believe it's according to your will, not because we want something for ourselves, but because you have said that you will build your kingdom in this world. And so, Lord, we orient ourselves to your glory, and we thank you for your joy. In Jesus' name, amen. ourselves standing in rising waters of the things that want to overwhelm us. Some of us might be feeling like we're neck deep in that right now, but God is with us. He is our hope and our joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. He's with us through it all.